Hello, and welcome to episode 107 of our podcast at Human Restoration Project. My name is Chris McNutt, and I'm a high school digital media instructor from Ohio. Before we get started, I want to let you know that this is brought to you by our supporters, three of whom are Skylar Prim, Mary Becker, and Matt Walker. Thank you for your ongoing support. You can learn more about the Human Restoration Project on our website, humanrestorationproject.org, or find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. In this podcast, we are joined by Dr. R.L. Stoller, a child and survivor advocate. Dr. Stoller is the author of an upcoming book, The Kingdom of Children, which reports on the issues and concerns of the evangelical homeschooling movement. Dr. Stoller, who was himself homeschooled, is an advocate of homeschooling who is calling attention to the issues that many face in the system, connecting the concept of faith, which is often juxtaposed with the practice of homeschooling. His work in child liberation theology, which you'll hear about shortly, centers the ideas of young people being leaders in their faith-based decisions. This is an interesting topic because it blends together ideas that aren't commonplace in progressive ed. Although I am not personally religious, there is a fascinating connection between faith-based education, self-directed learning, critical pedagogy, and more that we'll explore in this podcast. As a side note, this podcast also features Thomas White. Thomas is our prior development director who accepted a new position after this podcast aired. Essentially, Thomas did his job so well with us that he accepted a full-time position doing development work, leading to a conflict of interest with the role he had with us part-time. We're sorry to see him go, but Thomas is writing a book on classical Christian education, which has a lot of overlap with the upcoming conversation. I was homeschooled, kindergarten through high school graduation. I personally had a generally positive experience, but I also saw a lot of abuse and neglect that my fellow peers experienced. So that is what made me interested in advocating for homeschool children. Uh, the longer version is that while being homeschooled uh, in high school, I had the opportunity to uh, travel around the country, teaching speech and debate to other high, uh, homeschool high schoolers. And that exposed me to all sorts of different you know, subcultures and ideologies and practices within homeschooling. And so I saw pretty much everything and saw uh, just how far down the rabbit hole goes, really, in terms of how extreme and authoritarian the homeschooling world can be. And at the time, I was chalking it up to, like, the high performance culture that debate kind of fosters a lot. There have been studies on that. Um, but the more I heard from peers and the older I got, the more I saw like these patterns were transcending just, you know, that specific practice and started to see that, you know, these things were happening all over. Um, and then connecting with other peers when I was an adult and seeing the same patterns, that's what helped made me found Homeschoolers Anonymous, uh, which is a website that went viral, you know, got millions of views, and it shared stories from hundreds of homeschoolers uh, that experienced abuse and neglect. Um, and that inspired me to want to go back to school. I got my master's in child protection, um, which ultimately led me to, you know, child advocacy more and uh, child liberation theology, which I know we'll talk about later. Yeah. You know, without getting into like the 
gruesome war stories. I'm wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit on the kinds of abuse and neglect that happen in homeschooling. I mean, every sort of abuse you can imagine happens in there, um, but the patterns, there's some significant ones around physical abuse of children, especially corporal punishment. I'd say pretty much all the, you know, quote unquote, parenting experts in the homeschooling circles, they advocate for not just spanking, but like very systematic and severe spankings um, that are that are meant to, uh, quote unquote, break the will of the child. You're having these messages that are coming from the very top of the homeschool power structures that are saying, you know, this is the correct way to discipline your kids. And so you see a lot more physical abuse, I'd say, uh, than you'd see in some other communities. You also have a denial, a very common denial of like the reality of mental health um, issues. So, you know, children are going to be experiencing a lot of neglect regarding mental health issues. They're not going to be getting therapy or psychiatric medication or any, what, you know, whatever it may be. Parents don't believe those are like real things or they're the result of like some sin inside the kid instead of being an actual real disease. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned it being a, a sin inside the kid. So when you're talking about these homeschool communities, are these specifically religious homeschooling communities or is this something that you see in secular ones as well? I mean, a lot of the things that I experienced are going to be uh, specific to uh, evangelical homeschooling, which is a subset. You know, it's not the entirety of homeschoolers, but it is the, you know, the most significant subset. You know, the statistics uh, that I've seen are that, you know, between 90 to 94% of homeschoolers pre-pandemic, obviously the pandemic has likely changed things uh, in some significant ways regarding the demographics of homeschooling. But pre-pandemic, the numbers were like 90 to 94% of homeschoolers are conservative Christians specifically. So, you know, that's a pretty large uh, portion. Um, and at the same time, I also want to, you know, give a shout out to the all the homeschoolers who are trying valiantly to, you know, do homeschooling in a very different way and trying to uh, empower children rather than break their wills like a lot of evangelical homeschoolers want to do. So your work is based around really combating this and figuring out structural ways that essentially these abuses do not happen. Right now, are there any like regulations regarding all of this? Or is this just something that's that's like occurring and parents essentially have the rights and, and we're trying to change how the laws work? So there's there's no federal laws whatsoever about homeschooling. So this is going to be based state by state. And there are there are a handful of states like uh, Massachusetts, and they tend to be the more liberal states that have some oversight of homeschooling. Uh, but I would say the vast majority of states do not have any significant oversight of homeschooling. They either won't have laws at all, or when they do have laws or requirements, there'll be uh, different exemptions or carve-outs that essentially make the rules unenforceable. So I would say there's really not any over, any significant or impactful oversight at the moment. And in terms of like, you know, what I would like to see, uh, 
I would say I would divide that into like three different categories. Uh, the first would be, I mean, would be like communal ones. So these, this wouldn't necessarily have to be regular regulatory solutions. Um, I think that it's important that a lot that solutions to abuse and neglect in communities uh, not just be regulatory, but they also need to be, you know, from the grassroots and also from the top down in terms of just, you know, who's in charge of the communities. So I think there needs to be community solutions to abuse and neglect. And those could be awareness campaigns being led by the major organizations. It could be, you know, requiring background checks for people to join a uh, organization like HSLDA, the uh, Homeschool Legal Defense Association, and then there would be regulatory solutions. Uh, and I would divide those into two. One would be child protection, and then the other would be education. Uh, the child protection ones are the ones that I care about the most. Um, and those would be things like uh, requiring that uh, every homeschool kid has to see a mandatory reporter once a year or has to have, you know, visit, a, have a doctor exam once a year. Um, so these wouldn't have anything to do with controlling or restricting how parents teach. They would be more best practices that, you know, they wouldn't even have to be targeted to homeschoolers. It could just be a general rule, like school-aged children should be required to see a mandatory reporter once a year or something like that. And then there would be education regulations. Uh, those would be, tend to be more controversial, and that would be something like uh, requiring portfolio review of homeschool uh, curriculum. Uh, that, that's not my wheelhouse, uh, so it's not what I push or focus on most, but I do know that other homeschool advocates, uh, especially like the Coalition for Responsible Home Education, uh, those uh, organizations do think that things like portfolio reviews or teacher qualification requirements are important. You know, that's interesting when you talk about the, those different regulations we can put in place, uh, you know, regulations kind of as a word used broadly, I guess interventions maybe is a better one. Like when I hear homeschool regulations, my brain immediately goes to, you could put rules on the parents or you can put rules on the kids and, you know, some like a test they have to take or something. But there's actually like you just talked about so many other directions you could go with that. You can target the like the advocates who are defending these abusive parents in court. You can target the people who are writing the curriculum. You can target uh, these like the just the general advocacy organizations. And I think that's a maybe a helpful way to look at it is like this multi pronged approach. There's a lot of different places we can kind of put ourselves into the system and try to or in the way of the system, maybe. I think that, you know, the word regulation is a buzzword that a lot of homeschoolers are afraid of. And I think, you know, when we're talking about any of these solutions, I would always qualify it with the, you know, the fact that we're probably not going to see any of them anytime soon, just because uh, most homeschoolers, and I would include secular ones in this uh, statement, uh, buy into the parental rights absolutism that HSLDA promotes. Uh, so anytime you propose any solution to these issues, you're going to have a very, very strong reaction from the homeschooling community. When I say, you know, throughout all these solutions, I always like to say, you know, I would be happy with like the crumbs, like 
if we could get one of those laws, like one visit with a mandatory reporter once a year, like that would be, I would be ecstatic to have something like that. Like that's just, you know, the, the, the deck is stacked so much in the other direction. And is it the case then that, that the folks that would be most opposed to these solutions would be those who would be uh, kind of more on that authoritarian side? Because we have like a lot of folks in our network who would see themselves as like unschoolers or progressive educators who have pulled their students from schools because they are unhappy with, you know, how the, you know, how the education system is working for their child, not necessarily because they want to ingrain a certain like political ideology or uh, control in some way. It's actually kind of the opposite. Is the majority of this flack against these calls for regulation due to the prevalence of the abuse or is it like an ideological thing in the sense that it's about control uh, quite literally of like what they're doing? I would say it's more ideological. I think it's uh, you have a very strong libertarian anti-government streak uh, among homeschoolers, uh, even including the secular ones. I do think there is a, you know, there's a growing number of homeschoolers that I would say are progressive and are seeing uh, more, a different way to homeschool. Um, I would say that I've kind of distinguished those progressive homeschoolers from the secular ones because the progressive ones could include secular ones and religious ones at the same time. But they're, they have a very like, well, a, a progressive approach to their pedagogy when they homeschool. Um, and then there's these other secular ones that are very reactionary. And I, I don't think those are probably the ones that, you're, that are, your uh, network speaks to likely, but they definitely exist and are pretty significant. And they're always on uh, HSLDA's side. So how do we walk that line between fighting abuse and promoting homeschooling? And I think that we kind of need, we need to reframe that. Like, I don't think that that's, that's where the line is. I think that we should be thinking of fighting abuse and promoting homeschooling as like two sides of the same coin. Like the line for me, it goes between those who homeschool with like a, a child first approach uh, versus those who homeschool with a parent's first approach. You know, those who are homeschooling and putting children's needs and rights foremost versus those who are homeschooling to fulfill, you know, their own needs or wants. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. I want to take a brief moment and promote something that may interest our listeners, which is our upcoming Conference to Restore Humanity. Our inaugural virtual conference is from July 25th to July 28th, featuring amazing keynotes, including founding theorist of critical pedagogy, Dr. Henry Giroux, and organizer and co-author of Black Lives Matter at School, Dr. Denisha Jones. Further, we have fantastic and intriguing learning tracks on anti-carceral pedagogy, designing for neurodivergence, disrupting discriminatory linguistics, and promoting childism in the classroom. And our virtual conference is designed to be a virtual conference. As in, we use flipped keynotes, which focuses on conversation rather than staring at a Zoom screen. And our courses are interactive, asynchronous explorations. Learn more on our website at humanrestorationproject.org conference. Tickets are discounted right now at $150 for all four days, with discounts available for underrepresented communities. Now, back to the podcast.
I was not homeschooled. Uh, I don't really have much experience at all uh, working with folks that were homeschooled. So as you see all of these different, I mean, I'm sure most of your work or a lot of your work is interacting with and reading about folks that are abused in homeschooling situations. Do you ever wonder just conceptually if the cost of homeschooling outweighs the chance for abuse? A common critique of homeschooling is that homeschooling allows for folks to kind of raise their children without any supervision. And as a result, you know, they're, they're not going to a space that is, uh, school is a space where a lot of times you identify abuse. You identify things that are going on all the time we're calling uh, about things that are going on at the home that shouldn't be. Does advocating for homeschooling outweigh the potential cost of trying to go within homeschooling and fight the abuse? As in, why cannot the angle be, well, we shouldn't have any homeschooling at all? Well, there are certainly um, people that believe that, and uh, it wouldn't be that. In the United States, there's going to be all sorts of people freaking out that we're, that we're even talking about it. But if you went to some European countries, like they either have banned or heavily regulate homeschooling. That's a heated question, but not so much elsewhere. And I think that is part of American DNA, honestly, is like we have a very strong, you know, independent libertarian streak, regardless of our uh, ideologies that has just kind of cut across American society. I don't personally think that we should ban homeschooling. Um, I certainly at, at many times, uh, you know, I've been advocating for homeschool kids now for years and homeschool parents and homeschool leaders can be extremely infuriating. And sometimes I just want to throw up my hands and just be like, fine, we should just ban you all. But I really don't think we could, we should or, well, we can't, uh, but we also shouldn't because I think that there need to be options for children who experience abuse and neglect in public school and or private school. Like I read all these heartbreaking stories about kids that, you know, have died from abuse and neglect in homeschooling. Then there are also the same stories where, you know, some kid was trans and in public school and was being bullied and was begging their parents to homeschool them and the parents didn't. And then, the, you know, the kid killed themselves. And that's a perfect example of why there needs to be space for people to approach education in different ways. Like, and, and for me, it is, uh, you know, all this, everything has to come back to like, what is putting the children's needs and rights first? Like for me, that's the important issue. When we're talking about what what should parents you know be able to do or do not like for me that's kind of the wrong focus like the focus for me is on like what do the kids want and what do the kids need that for me you know education should be about the children it's their education i mean and honestly if a child says i don't want to go to public school i want to be homeschooled like i feel like that should be within their rights that last point is i think something that we all at human restoration projects and a lot on our network can really get behind kind of no matter how you feel about homeschooling regulation like yeah kids should be able to choose what is how they want to spend their time and what kind of life and what kind of education is good for them and i i love that way you talk about it of it's not about do we advocate for homeschooling or do we advocate for regulation like we advocate for homeschooling by trying to make it better and by trying to make it safer 
I think I see a parallel in that to the work that we do at Human Restoration Projects. We advocate for public schools, and we do that by trying to fix the problems in it and make it a better place for kids. Now, with all that, and I, I don't say this to push back, but just to kind of add, when we talk about the progressive homeschoolers, whether they call themselves unschoolers or whatever label that they use, there's definitely a large contingent that is not white. You know, I'm thinking about the black and indigenous homeschoolers who are their families and their communities have not generally been treated well by public school systems or other government interventions in general, you know, not treated well by CPS and ha- always kind of having the wrong assumptions put on them. Obviously, being very far away from that community myself, I'm making assumptions here, but I could imagine being in that community and not being excited about a check-in with a mandatory reporter or some some other intervention like that. So I was wondering what you would say to that. A, a few things. Uh, I mean, the first is that I totally get it. You know, I have a, a master's in child protection. Um, I have, you know, read books like Dorothy Roberts' uh, Shattered Bonds. Um, so I would totally, you know, I wouldn't argue with people that would say like the CPS system is racist and broken and has all sorts of problems. Um, and I mean, frankly, I have never been to public school other than to take like the SAT, but I, I, I have seen enough evidence to know that those statements could be given about the public school system too. Like, yes to all that. At the same time, you know, we still need to have, in my mind, we still need to have some standards and safeguards in place to protect children. And so we, we have to find a way to balance that. My, my main thought when you're, when you're talking about homeschoolers of color is that the white homeschoolers who, you know, tend to be the evangelicals, they're specifically marketing and trying to target the homeschool, homeschoolers of color to get them on their side of this, you know, parental rights absolutism, especially during the pandemic, like HSLDA, the largest homeschool lobby in the lobbying organization in the world. And they're a far right organization, like they created websites, they started giving out grants to specifically targeting homeschoolers of color. If you read a lot of the articles that came out during the pandemic that were like talking about the boom in the homeschoolers of color, you'll see that like almost all of them mention HSLDA or like the the leader that is mentioned is actually an HSLDA uh, leader as well. There's a lot of unfortunate subterfuge going on as well with all that that I think people need to really be aware of. Um, if we're going to try to fight that line between, you know, child first homeschooling and parent parents first homeschooling. And I, I think that probably makes a good segue into your specific work, which is child liberation theology. Uh, and uh, I know you're writing right now a series on this uh, on your website, which we'll link to in the show notes. But could you just provide kind of a, a basic overview of what that is? And then also talk about how it's both important in a religious context, but also potentially in a secular context. Well, to explain child liberation theology, uh, I should we should first start with liberation theology. Uh, liberation theology, probably the easiest way to describe it is it's a theology of self-determination. Um, it is a way of looking at and thinking about God and the Bible and Jesus a way that enables marginalized people groups to 
think about and speak about God and the Bible on their own terms, in their own ways, answering their own questions with their own language. And there's liberation theologies for potentially for every marginalized people group. Uh, it's first started with black theologians, uh, James Cone, and then uh, it went to Latin America, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, a Peruvian, Peruvian priest, uh, wrote a book called A Theology of Liberation. Uh, so James Cone and Gustavo Gutierrez kind of launched the movement. And then since then, uh, pretty much any marginalized people group you can think of, they have a liberation theology. So there's one for uh, people with disabilities. There's a queer liberation theology. Um, there's theologies, liberation theologies for uh, Native Americans. There are ones for other nationalities, like there's a Korean liberation theology. There's never been one for children. I, After getting my master's in child protection, I've studied liberation theology for a long time. And so I, I was like, there's got to be one for kids, right? And so I looked it up and I found one book that was written 25 years ago by a woman named Janet Pice. It's called Suffer the Children. And it's a theology of liberation for children specifically abused or neglected, um, but not this kind of more general idea of child liberation theology. Her book blew my mind and uh, I wanted to kind of generalize that and expand it. So that brought me to child liberation theology. I feel like I should interject just for some of our audience that maybe isn't familiar with a lot of these issues in this language, because you were talking about liberation theology as a way for marginalized or historically marginalized groups to think about God and the Bible in their own terms, and not even groups, but for individuals too as well. So I feel like we should explain for our audience that this is in direct contrast to the white American evangelical church in which the dominant mode is you show up to church on Sunday or sometimes other times during the week. The teacher tells you what to think about God and how to interpret a particular passage of scripture. And they tell you not only what to believe about that, but how to incorporate it into your life. And so it's a very, very much a receiving mode. The American evangelical church, which is primarily white, but being evangelical tends to spread its beliefs into other groups as well. Uh, that's kind of the mode that they've been in. Oh, yeah. So there's there's two stages. Uh, one involves adults. So this would be adults using their power and privilege in faith communities to create the situations and opportunity to scaffold, really, and build communities that are empowering and lifting up children. And then the second half of child liberation theology is really the part, the self-determination part in which we would be passing everything on to children to be able to take on for themselves. And so this is, you know, connects with what you were just talking about, Thomas, is that, you know, one way that we would implement child liberation theology is we have to challenge and change the way that we educate children about religion, um, you know, most of the evangelical church is the white evangelical church in the United States. You know, they have a, a, a banking model of education, which you were describing as like that receiving model, you know, where there's this absolute truth and there's the people that know it and they're, you know, passing that down to the receptive people and they're just taking in that information. Um, and that is, you know, a way, a model of 
education that I think needs to be challenged and changed. You know, we need to have, I think, you know, education is best when people are, you know, personally invested in it and interested in it. So I think that letting children uh, have, you know, the rights to their own education um, is a change that needs to be made, you know, not just in school, like I know that your is your project, but also in church, the way that you know, they, you know, faith communities interact with and treat children. In some ways, it's even so much more, more important in faith communities. You know, I think about in just a regular K through 12 classroom, you can use the banking model of education, or you can use more a liberatory model. Obviously, it's not just one or the other, you know, there's all kinds of gradations. But generally speaking, the the trade-off that you're making, the choices that you're making is that the banking model is easier. The structures of school are built around it. It's easier to implement. Everybody knows what to expect, but the learning is not going to be as deep. Students don't take ownership of the learning. They won't be as engaged. They won't, it won't be meaningful to them after they've left your class. And that's important. But when I look at that same question applied to faith communities, it's like, it's actually dangerous to use that banking model because often what they're teaching is how do you order your life? How does God, like the creator of the universe, want you to order your life? How does it, how should men and women differentiate from each other? And, and these things are like, once a single kid walks into that setting who doesn't fit that mold that they're being given, it just does like immense harm to them. That kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier, like the cost of homeschooling. Um, and that's the part that always makes me hesitate is that like homeschooling potentially has this ability to give parents like absolute 100% control over their child. Like if you live in a state where you don't have to register your child when they're born, like you could have a kid and raise them, you know, off grid their entire lives and literally no one knows they exist. Like uh, when we have this completely free for all approach to education that has no respect whatsoever for like the rights of the children themselves, uh, you create this uh, totalistic environment, basically the possibility for it. Well, I think if, right. Like how many Tara Westovers are there who never wrote exactly, a memoir about exactly. it? I mean, you know, I know there are, I know there are thousands of people who have that same story. Um, and those are the people that live to tell it. So that's the part that chills me. So the cost of homeschooling, like it's worth it to keep it. If we're talking about homeschooling that actually respects the rights of children, if we're talking about completely hands-off homeschooling, I, I don't think that's worth it. I, I think that's just an interesting way to, to broaden that scope in general for both secular and non-secular communities of just being able to recognize that self-determination theory leads to a greater understanding of the world in general, both in terms of interest, because if, if, if someone just tells you exactly what to do, you might wane from your interest in that thing. Um, but also because it's, it's such a narrow scope when you're told exactly what to do in the exact same way that um, a lot of people grow up and hate reading because in English class, they make you read certain books or people don't, don't think they're a math person because they just didn't understand how the math teacher explicitly told them how to do different things and, and what even math was as a topic. 
I would imagine then that the exact same exclusivity and authoritarian authoritarianism has the same impact on uh, uh, teaching of faith. Um, so your your interest in faith, your attachment to God, your uh, ability to understand the scripture, as Thomas was just saying, all of those different things are kind of go hand in hand. Uh, and it just makes me wonder then how child liberation theology promotes a religious education, not just from a avoiding the negative, like avoiding like feeling controlled, but also promoting the positive in the sense that young people would be more interested in being accepted by their faith, like they're just more interested in general in what they're doing. The easiest and probably the, you know, what's going to sound the strangest, uh, but the most concrete example I could give would be like putting children in positions of leadership in church. Like, um, I, I know, and I know that that's, that's kind of a radical concept in school too. There's some experimental schools where they let children like interview the potential teachers and vote on them and those sorts of things. I, I think we need that in the church. Like we need to be actually like letting children have some agency and be able to exercise it and exact same thing. I think they should be able to vote on their Sunday school teacher. I should, I think they should be, we should be soliciting their uh, perspective and input on the curriculum, their own curriculums. Like, I think we need to start, we empower children by allowing them to participate. I mean, I'm wondering how you get a church to do that, how you get them to welcome children into their leadership and into their theology making. Like, because the thing that automatically comes to my mind, and this is, this leads into a much bigger conversation that we may not have time for, but you're going to need a church to, you're going to need their focus to be on like community and experience rather than on dogma and teaching. Because if your whole organization, your whole institution is built around passing certain teachings and beliefs and dogma from one generation to the next, you're never going to welcome kids into positions of power other than the very, very select few who are like the preacher's kid who never rebelled or something, you know, like there's the very, very few, but yeah. So I don't know what you think of that. I feel like that's the million dollar question. Um, And I mean, that could be applied to really any other marginalized people group, like when it comes to church or, or, or any other faith community where you have, you know, centuries of excluding people from fully participating in church or, or whatever the community may be. So I think that in my mind, the best we can do is imagine a better future and talk about it. Like, um, even if 99% of the churches will never want to even entertain the idea. I mean, if we can get you know, the more we can get people to rethink some of their ideas about how they interact with children, how they interact with other people, how they, you know, pass on information and education, um, you know, we got to start with the small things if we're going to ever change the big things. So. Yeah, but fundamentally, it's the same question as how do we let historically marginalized identities into the seats of power in our businesses, our government, our schools? How do we do that without it becoming kind of a token representation where we just like choose the few who are not going to rock the boat? How do we like actually change the power dynamics there? Child advocacy and the child liberation theology, like for me, you know, all these things come down to 
you know, advocating for the children themselves. Like I want to make sure that whatever rules or regulations or solutions you want to propose to any of the problems in homeschooling, like, you know, we need to be making sure that in everything that we're doing with children, that we are, you know, not being selfish, that we are realizing that, you know, children are their own human beings and they have a right to their own lives and their own educations. Um, so if we're, uh, in my mind, if we're doing that in whatever context, whether it's school or church or uh, any other community, then I think that um, that's the right path. Thank you again for listening to Human Restoration Projects podcast. I hope that this conversation leaves you inspired and ready to push the progressive envelope of education. You can learn more about progressive education, support our cause, and stay tuned to this podcast and other updates on our website at humanrestorationproject.org.